So, a story about a father and a daughter. This is important for the story of uh, David, but it's also important for us because we are daughters, some of us. We have daughters. And here the king shows us this dynamic. You know, it's a story about arranged marriages, right? Um, and arranged marriages are still the norm for how people get married in the world today. We kind of recoil from it in the West. But uh, it actually, it's how most of the world uh, still gets married. It's been very important historically, especially for royalty, because they realize that when two people get married, it's not just two people getting married, it's two peoples coming together, two peoples being brought together. And so sometimes there's a strategic element to a marriage. But here we see it go awfully wrong. Uh, in chapter 18 there, in verse 20 through 21, you, we, we get what Saul is doing. He says, he's basically giving his daughter to, to David in order to plant a mole in the enemy's bedroom. So you might have picked up, this is sort of obvious, what is he doing? This parent, <clears throat> this father king, he's looking at his daughter only for the advantage to his own power that she can bring. To be a snare for him, for David. And this is really the first error, I would say, that we see here. A father is living out his ambition through her. And so he's completely, you see, looking past her as a person to see what she can be used for to advance his own kingdom. And so you get to verse 17 here, and uh, I think that's pretty much the key verse here to this passage. You see verse 17, and Saul is surprised. He's surprised, why would you do this, he says to his daughter. You see how out of touch he is. <laughs> Why would you let your father kill the man that she loves? Why would she do that? So what we have here is a father, don't we, who is out of touch with his daughter's inner life. Doesn't, doesn't know her. So out of touch. So that's the first one. Might be kind of obvious, the sin. The second one, is what I would say in this passage we can see is neglect of a daughter's spiritual life. He doesn't know her. You can see that, verse 17. This, this, this man does not know his daughter. And I would hazard a guess as to why that situation arose based on what I'm seeing in, of Mikal in this passage, and that is she probably never gave him any trouble. She's probably one of those children who was always obedient, never kind of rebelled, never contradicted what he was saying. But consequently, he didn't come to know her. And so he's shocked here. See, I think verse 17 tells us a whole story, and it's one of neglect. But Saul comes to the place where he thinks that his daughter all along has been working for him, and then he's shocked to find out she has different loves in her life. 
But, you know, Saul had actually already lost Michal a long time ago. He just didn't know it. And you can see there's stuff going on in her life that you have to question, where is this coming from? Look at chapter 19, verse 13. And you might have just read that. It went right by. She's saving David, right? And just let him down the window. What does she do? She takes an idol, the Hebrew is teraphim, one of these mannequins that uh, different religions would use for healing, and she puts it in his bed. Well, here's the question. What's she doing with an idol? <laughs> What's she doing with an idol in her house? Is she going to put it in, her, in his bed? I mean, this family is supposed to be worshiping Yahweh, right? At least ostensibly, that's what Saul says he's doing. He's, he's, he's a servant of Yahweh. Why is, what is it, what are they doing with these idols in the household? Why does Michal have one? Shows you he doesn't really know her. And later on, this story continues. The same pattern of Saul, so sad, so tragic, of ambition and neglect. So you get to chapter 25, and uh, what do we see? After David is out of the picture, knowing that his daughter loves him, he takes her and he gives her to another man in marriage, this man Palti. It seems just out of spite, just to spite his, his quote-unquote enemy David. So he's just using her for his political, his political goals. She's just a pawn. I mean, it's just cruel. That's how far he is. So we see this story go on, neglect and handling for his ambition. The two sins, I would say, that lost this man, his daughter, for his own kingdom. All right, that's the story we have. Now, you know the question that's coming next, right? Do we ever do this? (laughs) Do we ever do this with our children, with our daughters? And I imagine you would hear this and say, okay, I'm safe here. I'm not a stage mother. You know, I'm not one of these people who's like a frustrated actress trying to live out my ambitions. You're my daughter. Like telling them, you know, you've got to go out there and succeed and pushing them, you know. I actually did that with my son earlier, you know. I said, you should really be on the stage. I started to push him. I was like, go try out. Especially we lived in New York. I was like, go try out. You know, you should be in a play. He was like, no. (laughs) So I gave up. But you say, I'm not one of those people. I'm not, I'm not trying to live out my dreams through my child. I'm not like making my child be a, a, a middle-aged accountant like I am. Or I, I'm not, I, didn't, I played football. I'm not trying to make my son play football. Or, you know, I'm not making my child become a heavy equipment, mechanical uh, equipment uh, engine operator, you know, or I, because I am. You say, I'm not doing that. And that's good. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not trying to force the child in that, in that kind of way. But do we do this in a way that's more subtle, friends? Comes out in more subtle ways, the same problem of the heart. So for example, if our child is different than us, do we we create a distance with them? If our child is not like us in some way that we were expecting them to be, do we withdraw? in our hearts. You know, God gives us different children. Very often I think, 
he, he seems to give us children that are different from us. And it's very puzzling to us because we look at us, ourselves and our wives and we're like, hey, here's the DNA. Where did this come from? And he seems to do this, I think, in order to stretch us so that we keep growing as parents, even as our children are growing as well. But when that happens and we're disappointed, how is it that we react? How, what happens to our relationship with them? Because disappointment happens in both ways. Some of you young parents are finding that out, right? We're, we're inclined to talk <laughs> as adults about how our parents disappointed us. But then you find out, oh no, our children actually disappoint us as well. <laughs> it's running in both directions. Right? What's your reaction? Or more deeply, when, you're, when your child disappoints you in one way or another, What's your response? Do you die a thousand deaths? And is the line between you and your child blurring a little? What's going on there? Some of you are very, very involved in your children and their future and your, your laudatory. Some of you are putting so much effort into your children and their future. So thinking so much about their future. And it's good. It's good. But what happens when something interrupts their success? You know? Here's the key, really. Are you doing what you're doing so the child can fulfill the child's, the God's call on the child's life? Or is it to make you proud? that you can say, my son, the doctor. That's really the key. Are you, are you working hard, as hard as you're working for the child to be able to fulfill God's call in the child's life or for your own kingdom? So these are just different thoughts, different suggestions about the way this dynamic might play out in more subtle ways in our lives, how we might be living out our ambitions through our children. If you do that, you know, they'll eventually figure it out. Mikhail did. That's the first thing. Second sin, though, this other sin that we see in the passage is one of neglect. Neglecting the spiritual life of his daughter. Right? That's, that's what's going on in this passage. Instead of being attentive to what's going on with the daughter. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I really think highly of your lead pastor, Pastor Darren, because I've seen him, I've watched him, and seen how he responds to his family and how when a, when a problem has arisen in his family, in his children, that he will be all over addressing that. And he will spare no expense. He will take all the measures necessary to address that problem. He's a great example to us. But the opposite of that, we see in this passage in Saul. And some of you might feel like, you know, what is this addition of spiritual stuff that I have to deal with? I already have to deal with so much, just getting the kid fed, getting the kid clothed. You know, I remember when we had our first child, my wife was just looking at me with incredulity because we had our first child. I said, she was like, we need to do this, we need to get this, we need to get that. I'm like, you know, relax, they're just, you know, for the first year, they're just football-sized. 
You just wrap them in a sheet or something. My wife is just looking at me saying, you have no idea what this is going to take, do you? And I did, and I found out. You know, you could feel like it's so much, you know, just to, you know, make sure that they have a lunchbox uh, for, for school and make sure they have clean clothes and they're going out of the house. And you say, I've done all this. I've done good. I've provided a place for them. I've kept them, you know, reasonably safe. Made sure they had enough to eat. I've done all this. What's all this spiritual stuff as well? It might not seem fair to you. And the first thing to recognize is that more is required of you. First thing to recognize as a parent, to go against this trend, to go in the opposite principle, is to recognize there's more of you that's required. And you see it here. You say, I have to deal with all this spiritual stuff too? Friends, actually, it's all spiritual stuff. It's only spiritual stuff. And the lunchbox and the clean clothes should be directed towards their underneath your spiritual admonition, raising your child spiritually in the Lord. And you have to have eyes. Our eyes should always be upon what makes them prosper in their souls. If we don't have those eyes, then we start to become like Saul. And, you know, I I just want to say, this is something that you can catch from some of the great parents in in this church. There are some great parents in this church. And I would recommend, if you want to learn, hang around these parents. Pay attention to the way they pay attention to their children. You can learn a lot from that. It's really helpful. You can do it. You know, it's really about paying attention. That's what it's about. And it's most difficult when you have one of these children who doesn't seem to be any trouble. No trouble, squeaky wheel, no squeaky wheel, no grease. The tendency for us to get caught up in all of the different affairs of life, get pulled away from thinking about the spiritual nurture, the spiritual condition of our daughters and our sons. And that's what can happen to us as parents. It's a great concern. Especially in what um, has been called those quiet years. Age 10, age 11, age 12. When it seems to us, many times as parents, nothing's happening. They're doing their chores. They're doing their homework. They're going to church. And we can tend to look at that phase and we can say, man, nothing's really happening. Actually, a lot's happening. And what's the best thing that can happen is if you are developing your relationship with them during that time so that when what's coming next comes, you aren't left in shock. You aren't left saying, what happened to my wonderful child? (laughs) Because you already know what's going on in their hearts. Being attentive. So that's it, friends. You know, if you take these two principles, really, just these two principles from this passage, the opposite of these principles of what Saul is doing, that is, paying attention, spiritual attentiveness to the spiritual care, the spiritual condition of your child, and not living out 
what you're doing with the child for your own kingdom. You, do, you take these two principles, you will be great parents. You will be great parents. It'll get you very far as parents. Go very far. If you don't, then you end up like, like Saul in, in verse 17. And you know, I think that moment, that verse 17, when Saul realizes his daughter's lying to him, that's the moment I think that Saul had his, his worst parenting pain. That's when Saul comes to realize what's happened with his daughter. So in verses 11 through 14, she, she says to David, got to go through, got to get out, go through the window, lays the idol. She lies for him. So Michal saved David's life, and that was a good thing. She, at that point, she was recognizing the anointed. She did well to save David. But there are also, what you can see in this passage, are seeds that she's actually also on a different trajectory. Right? Because how does she end up responding to her father when he comes and he says, why did you do this? What does she do? She lies, but she really lies for herself, does she not? She really lies so to, to take any pressure, any condemnation, any any recompense off of her, right? She characterizes David as someone who is going to kill her, right? You see that? What she's saying to Saul is, he would have killed me if I didn't. Well, she didn't need to do that, and that was wrong to characterize David as someone who was going to kill. He wasn't going to kill her. So what's she doing? She's lying in order to get this, get, you know, condemnation off of her, but what she's doing is building up in her father's mind this false image of David as the enemy, which is the very thing that he's doing and he needs to be contradicted in, right? So what she's doing is she's mischaracterizing David to save her own skin. She's building up this false image. She didn't have to. What could she have said? Just imagine if she had said something different. What, she, what could she have said at this moment? When Saul comes in and says, why did you let my enemy escape? Why would you do this to me? What could she have said? Well, she could have said, Dad, he's not your enemy. I'm not your enemy. Things are good. Don't you remember? He's your champion. Acknowledge him. Recognize the anointed one before you. He's the champion. It will go well for you. But that's not what she does. And I imagine that Saul starts to see this when he's looking at his daughter and he realizes this one thing. She is now somebody who's going to lie, say whatever she needs to say, to prop up her own kingdom. What's happened? Mikal has started to become Saul. The cat's in the cradle. And so what we see happening now is Mikal is starting to become like her father. And that's exactly what happens. Do you notice here in, in uh, verses 9 and 10? When does Saul attack David? When is, when is Saul driven over the edge in disdain? And, and, and when does he take the spear and he tries to, to nail David to the wall? When? When David is worshiping. Right? When David's playing the heart, when he's worshiping, when he's being the very one, the very, the very thing that, that saves this man, that, the very characteristic 
that makes him a man after God's own heart is when he is playing out his harp, playing out his heart to God. That's when Saul takes the spirit, tries to drive him to the wall. What do we see happen in Michal? Well, we see her, 2 Samuel chapter 6, at the window. When does she despise David? When does she come to the place of great disdain and criticism and condemnation of David when he's worshiping? You go and read the story in 2 Samuel 6, maybe we will. That's when Michal comes to the place That's where she's driven over the edge when she's in the presence of David worshiping. What's happened? Michal has become her father. Hasn't obeyed him. She's become him. That's the result, friends. And that's what Paul, that's, excuse me, Saul, that's what Saul went home thinking that day. The cat's in the cradle. So friends, if we do this, if we even in our hearts allow these errors in our parenting, do not quench them. If we live out our ambition through our children or handle them to advance our ends, we ought not be surprised when one day we wake up and we realize they've become those ambitions. Ugliness in front of us. This is why we are called by this passage to repent. This is hurts, actually. This hurts this passage, doesn't it? <laughs> it hurts to think about this. But you know, God is calling us in this way to repent so things can be different. And actually, we have the way through in this passage as well. In this very passage, we have our hope as parents even if we feel like we fall short or we fail our children. The way out is through the other child in this story. If you compare the other child of Saul, Jonathan, with Michal, what you see is the other way. Both of them, both Michal and Jonathan, start out loving David. You know, both of them have this love for David. And, you know, um, people these days tend to read about that. Oh, David and Jonathan had this love, and it surpasses the love of women. They say, oh, it was a homosexual relationship. Yeah, we tend to misread it in the midst of our cultural hysteria. (laughs) Tend to read it that way, but that's really misreading what's going on. And in that misreading, it's costly because it takes you away from the main point of the story, which is that Jonathan was the one who recognized the anointed. This is what was so great about Jonathan's faith, is that he had a love for him because David was the anointed one and he recognized it. In fact, James P. Jordan uh, uh, points out that, actually, if you read carefully 1 Samuel 13 with Acts 13 in the New Testament, and you look at the dates It really does seem to indicate that David was born in the 10th year of Saul's reign. And at that time, Jonathan was already fighting, which means that Jonathan was probably about old enough to be David's father. They weren't the same age. If you look at those dates carefully, it seems to indicate that. That David was born, Saul had already been reigning 10 years 
Jonathan was fighting um, at that time. Well, if that's the case, friends, that makes Jonathan's support of David for the crown even more extraordinary. Because here he is the one who, you know, was old enough, could have had the crown, and yet he was saying, no, this one is the anointed one. This one is the one God has sent us to save. And so both start out loving David, but you can tell, even though they both saved David's life at one point, Michal's on a different trajectory. Because eventually then Michal, at this point, will lie about David to continue Saul's insanity. Whereas Jonathan does the exact opposite. In verse 4 through 5, do you see what Jonathan does? He straightforwardly argues David's righteousness. He says what Michal could have said. He says, Dad, don't you remember? You saw him and what he did to the Philistine. You rejoiced at it. It was for your benefit that he did it. He's not your enemy. He's calling the, he's calling the king back to sanity. What do we see here? We see a faithful son in spite of the parent's error. And that, friends, should give us hope. However we're doing with our parenting, it should give us hope that God can still save our children. Jonathan, the faithful son, prevails with his father. You see in verse 6, Jonathan's intercession brings peace. The faithful son succeeds in bringing righteousness into the situation. And so, verse 7 There, he brings the champion back into the father's presence, which is just what this father needed. The faithful son brings the anointing back into the household, into the presence of the parent. What is this, friends? This is a picture for us of the true faithful son, Jesus Christ. Because none other than Jesus Christ did this very same thing. He likewise prevailed in his intercession for us. So even if we fail as parents, the faithful son, if we welcome him into our households, can bring about righteousness in the situation. He is our hope, that one faithful son. And he is sufficient, friends, because as we bring him into our household, He makes it so the cat's not in the cradle. And our children may not be lost. Let it be. Please stand with me. Let us turn to that faithful son now. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give you thanks, to give you praise, O Lord, because you give us hope, because you, who are our model, not only give us an example, but you go farther than that and give us redemption in our parenting, in our, in our being children, in our being parents. You give it to us. And because of the hope, Lord, that we have and the way in which the spirit of grace works in our midst, We join our voices now with all the company of heaven in their unending hymn of praise.